So welcome to the IDBM podcast season 2 episode 9 uh blue walls and green chairs. Yes. I'm here with uh, Eva Berglund and Yanna Latemaki. Yes. Um Eva is the adjunct professor of environmental policy at Altos Department of Design. Uh she has written and taught on grassroots urbanism, environmental social movements, urban development and transformations. She's currently focused on how social organization and environmental change together becomes issues for intellectual reflection, practical action and public concern. Mm. So, hey Eva, nice to be here. I would add actually also that it's kind of important that I have an anthropological training. I can't seem to shed that. All right. And Yena joins us from Citra where she's a specialist of foresight and insight. And she's working with the foresight team on the future of well-being mega trends sustainable education and she's also working on a book on sustainability human well-being and the future of education that is being published this year hello hello wonderful to be here with you guys and uh i i also have to add that my training is in political science so so uh we have something in common maybe with eva mm. from our back background studies. All right. Very excited to be here. All right. And I'm your host Aditya and today we're going to be discussing about consequences. And to start things off, um the word consequences. Um I'll start with you, Yana. Okay. What does consequences mean to you within the context of your work? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, if I look at the question of consequences through the lens of my work what I'm doing right now um so foresight work um the goal of foresight is not really to produce an accurate prediction of the future but instead to look at different possi- possible futures and perspectives on that and have a dialogue with um uh, stakeholders and with people about those possible futures um so future is in many many ways unknown since it hasn't happened yet uh so but the starting point in my work is that with the decisions we do now we can shape the future uh and there are many different consequences consequences with the with the decisions we do every day and that we focus right now our efforts so one of my project is the next era of well-being and this is a major co-creation and foresight project where we looked at the next phase of the nordic societal model and the welfare state so how could we uh maintain the great successes that the nordic societal model has uh brought to these countries but at the same time realizing that we're not living ecologically sustainably so how can we uh redesign the model uh, so that we could make this transition to a to a society where we live sustainably and live a good life. Um yeah, so when I think of, of the word consequences, 
I think of the long-term societal consequences of the actions we take now, so be them uh, in terms of climate policies, in terms of how we try to develop our democracy or democratic institutions, or how we, what kind of uh, decisions we do regarding education, just to name few. Uh, yeah. Okay. So that actually sounds very sort of similar to your areas of interest as well, Eva. Mm, it does. So what does consequences mean to you in then? Well, going, I guess, perhaps up a level to a sort of more academic or scholarly interest, which is where I've been approaching these things recently. Um, I guess I've become interested in how thinking about consequences is part of our political life these days. So that there are organizations like Yemla's whose job it is to do exercises about foresight, which wasn't always the case. The idea that we should think about consequences the way that we do today is a reasonably new idea. Although, of course, you know, wise people, I guess, have always thought about, well, what's going what's to happen when I do X? Um, and learning from other people's mistakes has always been a, a virtue, not one that many people learn. But um, I guess I'm thinking that what I could bring to discussions about consequences is a sensibility to how differently they can be thought about. So that for me, the way that today we think about consequences of our actions for climate futures or for democratic accountability or for everyday life in, you know, difficult situations that people are experiencing, um, those are culturally variable and we can think about them, we can reflect on them, we can look at historical antecedents. How have people imagined change And consequences in the past. I mean, consequences to me is about, in a sense, about cause and effect or agency and the capacity to identify change. And I guess what I would think is that consequences can be anything, but it's culturally defined. What what counts as change for one person may not count as change for another person. And sometimes I, you know, to be really banal about it, you know, you might be able to think that uh, whether you have a particular brand of t-shirt is a consequence of something, but it's not a terribly important consequence. So consequences and choices and agency somehow go together in a Western tradition of thought. We're thinking about individuals as being able to make agents, uh, individuals as being able to make change, but also as consequences as things that have some kind of definable, linear, uh, you know, causal chain And we're increasingly finding that that, of course, doesn't apply. And we're having to find different ways of thinking about consequences in complex ways that admit different time frames and um, possibly, you know, as, as I think um, will come to unintentional consequences. But it's a very kind of, I think it's a very European habit to think that consequences could be somehow simple. And in fact, it probably nobody probably ever thought of consequences as a simple simple word, but it tends to become simplified when we try and manage big, scary issues like climate change and social change. <clears throat> and the other example I encountered recently was um, this plan for the UAE, where <laughs> I was pretty surprised when I saw this because I thought it was some sort of 
prank from the onion or something but they have a acute water crisis and there's not enough drinking water and as a way of solving this the plan that they've come up with which they're going to do a trial run for next year is to bring an iceberg from antarctica like literally pull it along with ships into the persian gulf in a way that it affects the salinity of the persian gulf itself and makes it more sort of fresh water at least for the next year and they plan to do this on an annual basis so i thought about this and from my own experience it felt like oh my god there's so many consequences they're not considering whether it's the ocean currents whether it's the fact that we're reducing the ice in the antarctic whether changing the salinity affects the ocean life there were so many things that came to my mind but how and why do you think organizations or in this case countries um end up with solutions for problems that ignores like these sort of massive consequences or is it just a case of the greater good sort of argument yeah it's pr- a pretty drastic example yeah you might get quite depressed when thinking about this in in a more deep way yeah just i see this is an example of not being capable of systems thinking or just thinking in a little bit more wider way about the consequences of this decision So you mentioned when you introduced me uh, this book Sustainability Human Wellbeing and the Future of e- Education that's being published this this autumn by Paul Craven Macmillan and yeah the book has 15 writers and when i think about the common themes that they keep on uh, emphasizing in these different articles uh, they are systems thinking design thinking and uh, global literacy so being able to understand people living in very different circumstances and and so on so emphasizing these themes in education and learning and i i think the reason why these writers emphasize these is exactly that we won't wouldn't end up doing crazy decisions like bringing an iceberg to the person golf <laughs> but uh we'll be able to think about the big picture a little bit more and how could we live in a more sustainable manner and also because uh, this is one country doing this decision and thinking about um how to make the life better at least on the short run for their citizens but how could we increase the empathy for other people than just persian uh or the people living in that region or people in Finland but how could we increase um, just this global sense of empathy and collective how would i say uh, action that we need to take yeah and one of the writers Harold Harold Glasser in the book states that oftentimes we jump into conclusions and solutions too rapidly so we should really first analyze the root causes of the problem at hand so i think this has been happened in this case of the iceberg so <laughs> he's also saying that when we jump into the implementation phase we often end up like reproducing the existing narratives uh the existing problems with this narrative so so i think this is a an important point as well yeah i, I would um i mean it's a fabulous example of 
a kind of hubris that I think has been around for a long time, um, but whose limits are also being questioned. So I think it draws attention. The fact that this is a country also draws attention to the fact that all de design decisions are also political decisions, mm -hmm. and in this particular instance, it's a it's a you know, nas national sovereignty issue. But I guess that sort of leads me to I'm I, I would slightly maybe even disagree amazingly with with Yena, whereas I, I really don't believe that kind of cultivating a sense of global empathy is uh, is particularly um, reasonable because people work from their own places and the governments of you know even wealthy countries have responsibilities towards, you know, whoever has elected them and so on. And I guess as um, somebody who's done a lot of ethnographic research, I keep going back to what I think of as an ethnographic principle, which is that most people most of the time do what they think is right. And so we have to try and find out ways of working out why do certain decisions look like the right ones for those people and to try and come up with kind of partial agreement at least about what the consequences might be. And rather than maybe thinking so much in a kind of all-encompassing systems thinking way, to come up with enough partial understanding and maintain lines of communication with the possible different people who are involved, that we don't kind of get caught up in our own hubris and also that we don't think that we are the good guys and they're the bad guys. Because I think thinking in those kinds of moralizing terms about any kind of design decision or any kind of decision is really just um, unhelpful um, and doesn't really use the sort of intellectual capacities that human beings have, um, which actually would bring me to sort of my answer to your question, which is like, just do the research. Um, but of course, in order to be able to do the research, it means you have to have resources, you have to have time. Um, you probably also have to have imagination to go beyond just interviewing people and talking because a lot of times we kid ourselves about what we want. And so if you're interviewing somebody, however powerful they are, however much of, an, uh, of a perspective they have on the entire field at hand, you know, what, the wisdom or otherwise of schlepping icebergs across half the planet, you know... Um, those people are going to have, you know, sort of um, educated viewpoints as well as just personal gripes um, to work from. Um, but of course, research doesn't isn't given very much time anymore. And um, I think also there's a problem that um, there is an assumption of, or, or, or there isn't there isn't enough scope perhaps for allowing for failure. In other words, that you could go back to the drawing board and say, hey, you know, I'm not talking about icebergs now, but any other kind of design, design decision. Or if you've gone so, so far down a particular route, you've identified the stakeholders, you've identified the problems, you've identified the problem space, and you've spent loads of time and energy and resources that you could still allow for failure and still allow for rethinking. I think that would be really important. That's really interesting. And I think that's one of the things that gets missed easily where you go down a path to a point where you're really wedded to an idea or a concept and at that point even if you start thinking of negative consequences you start coming up with ways that that can be mitigated rather than having to go back and mm. rethink and <clears throat> I'm sure time and resources are a constraint but then 
there's probably a good amount of weighing up you'd have to do whether those time and resources are more mm. valuable than the consequences that you're about to create as well. Mm. So I would say with that in mind, um, what are some of the ways that designers or organizations can be more conscientious about the consequences of their decisions and start crafting better solutions so that you don't get unintended pitfalls? Now, you mentioned research as mm. one of them. Anything else? Maybe rethink, you know, being self-critical. I think particularly when we're working with really big societal issues, um, we know that they're urgent and we feel that there is an absolute need to do something rather than just sit around waiting for things to happen. Um, but there are different ways of doing that and there are different scales at which you can do that. And in my own research, I've looked at activists, you know, who are people at a very small scales looking at very local or at least localized uh, levels at things that they can change and things that they can influence. Um, and so, you know, to, to be kind of confident about the value of things that happen at small scales, I think is something that I would really like to, um, it's a horrible word, but to impart to students is that it can be incredibly valuable to just take on a small challenge or a small part of the world and see what you can understand and learn and possibly maybe change about it rather than trying to take on all these big, big issues, because there are so many of us who are taking on little issues. And at the same time, of course, the big institutions are filled with inertia. They're doing what they've been doing for tens of years and decades. And I mean, I would even sort of say that it's, it's much more easy for, for people in the grassroots um, to come out with radical ideas that might seem crazy. So for example, at the moment, I've, I've been reading a lot about what is the post-capitalist world going to be like? What is the world going to be like when the market is no longer the all, you know, the sort of, uh, what would, word would I use, the most important legitimator of political decisions? And it's been really interesting that just in the last few years, a lot of literature has come up, which is really questioning this and really thinking about, hey, let's think radically here. But the problem is that the big institutions and the big governments aren't going to be able to do that. So... For those of us sort of, you know, wherever we are in the real world, it's just trying to keep open to the different kinds of, sound, you know, noises that are coming out from different areas and realizing that radicalism might be crazy and it might disappear into a black hole or it might get traction. It might grow, develop into something that is actually going to be useful, but not to just chuck it on principle. Okay. I look, look at this question more from the process Uh, angle. So how to build an inclusive design process? I think it's a super in, uh, important starting point or should be for, for all of the projects. So it's it's quite hard to be always conscious of our own biases and it's quite hard to even realize what what, our bi what those biases are. But it's I think it's something that can be practiced. A good way to develop this capacity is to have a diverse team that can still work together effectively. Um, so really putting effort to building a team with people who have diversity of background, diversity of thinking, um, and so on. Other things, uh, yeah, so really asking those people who are going to be somehow involved in the project or going to be the end users of, of a product or whatever the end, end 
product, product is going to be. Uh, another thing from the process angle is to build a culture of reflection, uh, continuous assessment and evaluation, uh, where, where members of the organization are encouraged to do self-reflection and also peer peer assessment. I think one of the most undervalued kind of a forms of evaluation or assessment is doing it together with your peer. Um, Yeah. So those are some of the some of the important things. Uh, my third point is about experimental culture. So testing stuff. Uh, I think you touched upon this this in your previous answers. But in Finland, we have this proverb: uh, "Well planned is half done." Mm. <laughs> uh, and and this tells a lot about our culture, and we we really appreciate careful planning, and. Um, That's that's good, but I think our love for planning needs to be kind of like supported or supplemented by by these strategic experiments that we test different things and then evaluate what was working, what was not working, how can we do it better? Maybe we need to um, just forget about this project because it wasn't working at all, and and un- unintended consequences were were bigger than the intended ones. Um, so yeah, one of my favorite examples of, of, of experimental culture from from Citrus projects was was done in Uvascula in 2013 to re- reduce consumption of natural re- resources and increase well-being in the region. And Uvascula residents were then asked to uh, send their ideas, and there was a lot of ideas, and maybe 15 of them were then developed further into practical experiments. And one of these was to reduce leftover food in schools. So just testing that could we could we sell the leftover food in schools? Would anyone come and buy it? And uh, it turned out to be a a quite a nice success. So uh, in my understanding, especially the older people uh, close by the school came after the school day to have a meal and they could also have a have a discussion with with other people so there was also the social aspect and then it got started in 20 or so municipalities in in Finland the same kind of model of selling the leftover food mm-hmm. in schools so maybe it might sound like a really small idea but then might grow through an experiment into into a quite impactful thing yep yeah Can I actually add yep. more to my my pre- you know, picking up on what Yena was saying um, when you're talking about the the process and getting away from the finish, perhaps stereotypical plan carefully first, and then you know don't take too many risks and get it right, and don't upset anyone on the way. Um, I've seen some really good results with using games within professional teams. Not so much for bringing in the stakeholders, not so much for, you know, reaching the hard to reach group groups and being kind of inclusive in that sense of dealing with the diversity of the social fabric, but but really getting the best out of your professionals and the people who are kind of already on board, who've probably been socialized into some pretty standardized ways and, and often very institution um, sort of um, related ways of thinking. One example was a building futures game that we um, that I assessed actually in London again in the 2000s 
which was designed for, for use with various stakeholders, but in the end turned out to be best for using with really top level decision makers before they even kind of take, you know, serious decisions about what they're going to do with anything. Um, and it's not that I'm suggesting that we turn things into games or just make everything into a sort of uh, yeah, design thinkers, lovely post-it note infused workshop charrette, you know, that there there is other stuff to be done, but there is definitely space, I think, there for for kind of in, in, enhancing professionals' understanding of themselves. And I think that also allows professionals, and I, 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 I use the word professionals now to mean all of the people whose job it is somehow to come up with new designs, whether it's, um, you know, within Citra or in a, or actually a cool, you know, commercial um, area. But, you know, that's a way of learning to be self-critical because I think that's one of the things that we really need to do to get to this kind of a different way of thinking about sustainability, a different way of thinking about the consequences of modern technological life. And one of the things that seems to happen so often and which didn't seem to happen in the Uvascula, at least from the reports that I read, was that there is a tendency to blame individual human beings who are, you know, who aren't changing their behavior in the way that they should be. You know, that there is a lot of ideas through design to actually nudge people to behave differently. And then when they don't behave, there's frustration and easily a lot of blaming. Well, maybe it's because there's an infrastructure that makes it incredibly hard for those people to change their behavior. Mm. Or they might have other kinds of reasons, maybe moral reasons. Maybe they have only a shred of self-dignity left, um, which allows them to have very, very narrow scope, or very narrow kind of room for maneuver. Mm. So I guess in sort of response to your question, you know, how do we get um, designers and organizations to, to think and behave differently is is encouraging those kinds of reflections and you were saying about, you know, the reflective culture of the workplace, but perhaps just avoiding blaming others and being self-critical in a playful way could be helpful. Yep. I think this is sort of a topic that we can talk about endlessly because now you touched upon looking back at our history and there's so many lessons to be learned from past attempts to solve the same kind of problems as well that can give us a clue as to the consequences of decisions we're taking now and mm. also from your perspective about looking using foresight tools and trying to envision what are the possibilities so i would say we could probably go on and on but i think it's sort of time to sort of wrap up this podcast mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i just want to mm. thank both of you so thank you eva and yena for joining us today thank, thank you, you so for much. inviting yeah and this was a really informative session and I'm sure the students are going to get a lot out of it. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much.